0: Hello there, and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. We are going to be looking at the final chapter in the book of Ezra, and today's episode is entitled, A Series on Hatred, Ezra 10. We are in the middle of a series on the concept of hatred, and while we are going through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, both of these books end with a serious act of hatred, And so we're looking at hatred and why we hate others and how we can best avoid it. The reason we are doing this is because when I look at Christians in America today, I am overwhelmed by the amount of hatred that we possess. Hatred for a political party, hatred for immigrants, hatred for minorities. In fact, we've almost become more famous for how we hate than how we love. So today we're going to be looking at one extraordinary act of hatred found in Ezra 10. But to talk about this story, we have to give some of the backstory. So in 586 BCE, the nation of Judah was minding its own business. It was less powerful than surrounding nations, but this came to an end when Babylon rose to the east as an empire and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Babylon then took the remaining survivors of Jerusalem back with them to Babylon and they forced them to live in exile. This Babylonian exile is the most important event in the Old Testament. So the people of Judah lived in exile from 586 to 539 BCE when a man named Cyrus the Great from Persia marched on Babylon and defeated the Babylonians. Cyrus then came across the people of Judah who were still living in exile and said, Who are you? And they said, We're the people of Judah. And he says, You are free to go home, to go back to Jerusalem. And while he sent them home as free people, there was a catch to this. They were allowed to return home to Jerusalem as long as they paid taxes. So this liberation that they experienced, the people of Judah said was an act of God. But then the question became, well, why didn't God liberate us totally? What is with this half liberation? And so the heavily taxed people of Judah, living in their home country once again, began to ask a very important question. Are we still the people of God? This is the dominant theological question of post-exilic Jerusalem. In fact, they asked this question for the next eight decades. And as this question was being asked, around 460 BCE, we are introduced to a man named Ezra. Now, Ezra has Jewish heritage, but he's born in Babylon, which is under Persian rule. Ezra's ancestors chose not to return at the first chance they got back to Jerusalem. And so Ezra grows up in Babylon, still living with his family in exile, when King Artaxerxes, who is the king of Persia, tells Ezra that he wants him to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. So Artaxerxes gives Ezra all kinds of power, gives him all kinds of money, and sends him back across the desert with about 4,000 other people, all the way to Jerusalem, where Ezra arrives at the temple, offers sacrifice, and then people begin to come to Ezra with their problems. And the very first problem that the leaders bring before Ezra is found in chapter 9, verse 1. We talked about this last week, but it's worth reviewing to understand what happens in Ezra 10. The officials say to Ezra, The people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons. Thus the holy seed has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands, and in this faithlessness the officials and leaders have led the way. When Ezra hears about these interracial marriages, he freaks out. He rips his clothes, he rips his head covering, he rips his hair out of his beard and his hair out of his head. He then stays silent for a day and after a day he begins to pray a prayer of repentance to God. He asks God for forgiveness for all the people of Judah that they may be considered clean despite their terrible suffering and sin of interracial marriage. After he's done with that prayer, we then arrive at Ezra chapter 10, verse one, which reads, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. The people also wept bitterly. So just imagine a crowd of people who are crying and weeping because of the interracial marriages that are around them. Now, one of these people who is weeping is a man named Shechaniah. And Shechaniah goes before Ezra and brings to him an idea. He says, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to send away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Take action, Ezra, for it is your duty and we are with you. Be strong and do it. So Shechaniah goes before Ezra and says, you have the power, Ezra, to force these interracial marriages to divorce. Not only that, but once they divorce, we can send out these foreign women from our land and with them these children who have mixed ethnicities. Now, if that's not tragic enough, when you consult scholars like Dr. Roger Nam, who is the dean of the Portland Seminary, he'll tell you, that when you're sending out foreign women and children, it's almost like giving them a death sentence. They do not have kinship structure to protect them anymore. So Shechaniah tells Ezra to go ahead and basically give these women and children a death sentence because this interracial marriage is nullifying the religious passion the people of Judah have for their God. We then read in verse 5, Then Ezra stood up and made the leading priests, the Levites, and all of Israel swear that they would do as had been said, so they swore. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehonanan, son of Eliashib, where he spent the night. Ezra did not eat bread or drink water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. They made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if any did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all their property should be forfeited, and they themselves banned from the congregation of the exiles. So Ezra ensures that he's got the political backing to pull a stunt like this off. He then sends out a decree across all of Jerusalem saying, you need to come to the city center within three days. If you don't show up, we're going to take all of your property and you yourself will be banned from our congregation. So three days come and three days go. And as people are walking toward the temple, there is a heavy downpour of rain. We read in verse nine, then all the people of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month. All the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have trespassed the married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now make confession to the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Now in response to this speech from Ezra, we assume that the men in this heavy rain will tell Ezra, no, you can't send away our wives. You can't send our children outside the city walls. They'll die out there. But instead, we read in verse 12 then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said, Ezra. It is here then that the crowd points to the rain, and they say, But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or for two, for many of us have transgressed in this matter. Let our officials represent the whole assembly. And let all in our towns who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times. And with them the elders and judges of every town until a fierce wrath of our God on this account is averted from us. In other words, the people ask Ezra for time and a system to ensure that these interracial marriages are broken up. Now, while the overwhelming amount of men supported this decree from Ezra, we read in verse 15 that there were four men who opposed it. Only Jonathan, son of Ashel, and Jahaziah, son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshelam and Shabbatai the Levites, supported them. Ezra agrees to this system, dismisses the assembly, the rain stops, and 10 days later, this system is integrated. And it went something like this. A religious official like Ezra would say, Eliezer married a foreign woman. Then Eliezer would bring his family, his wife, and his children to the religious official. And the religious official would say, Eliezer, you must divorce your wife and cast out your children. Eliezer would say something like, all right. And then Eliezer's wife and two kids with mixed ethnicities would be cast outside the city. Then the religious official would go to the next name and say, Eliphelet, you have married a foreign woman. Eliphelet then would bring his wife and his children to the temple and he would say, Eliphelet, you must divorce your wife and cast out your children. And Eliphelet would say, well, if that's what the Lord wills, and the woman and children would be cast out. Then the religious official would go to the next name and say, Elioni married a foreign woman. Then Eleonai would bring his family before the religious official and he would say, Eleonai, you must divorce your wife and cast out your children. And Eleonai would respond by saying, fine, whatever. And then Eleonai's wife and children would be cast out of the city. This went on for two months where the state, the church, the religious institution mandated divorces from all of the people who had married someone from outside the tribe. And as you read Ezra chapter 10, verses 16 to 43, you get a complete list of all the men who divorced their wives, and if you total it up, it is 111 forced divorces. Now there is no list about how many kids were impacted by this, but it's reasonable to average it out to about two. So 111 women are cast out of the city with 200-plus children, and they are all left to die. And after reading name after name after name in Ezra chapter 10, the very last verse that occurs in the book of Ezra is found in verse 44, and it reads this. All these men had married foreign women, and they sent them away with their children. And with that, the book of Ezra comes to a close. Now, reading those last verses makes it feel like this mixed marriage ban is the high point of spirituality of the tenure of Ezra. Like everything they're working toward is to do this difficult task of divorcing foreign wives and sending out these children of mixed ethnicities in order to show how passionate they are for God. But what's really important for us to acknowledge is that this story of Ezra and the mixed marriage ban is a complete failure of religion. This is when religion goes the wrong way, right? This is when religion fails the very people that practice it. Now what's fascinating about this failure of religion is how much religious people refuse to study it. Because I went to college to be an architect and in my structures class one of the most important things that we studied were structural failures. None perhaps were more famous than the structural failure that happened at the Hyatt Regency Hotel in Kansas City on 1981. There was this skywalk that hung over the lobby and tragically it collapsed and killed 114 people and injured 200 more. Well, investigators were sent in to study this failure because we wanted to make sure that this never happened again. And what was revealed is that there was an original design for how this bridge was supposed to be supported. And the actual construction was different from the original design. And that's why the bridge collapsed. And so architecture schools teach this story to remind people of the importance of detailing their drawings and then following up and making sure that the construction is the same as what they have designed. But when it comes to failures of religion, I have found that religions, and particularly Christianity, refuses to study its own failures. And this refusal is usually rooted in the idea that we have to tell people at all times that religion is good. And if we talk about our failures in front of people outside of our faith tradition, they may think that we're failures in general, so we try our best to take Ezra 10 and sweep it under the rug so that no one will pay attention to it. I think this is gravely unhealthy. We should study our failures of religion in an effort to make sure that they never happen again. Because while the mixed marriage ban is not something I have seen in my lifetime, I have seen a lot of the sins of Ezra 10 repeat itself in America today. And I believe that we can learn three things from the story of Ezra and the mixed marriage band that can change the way we practice as Christians today and ultimately lead us toward love and avoid the temptation of hatred. So let's talk about three different things we can learn from Ezra 10. To talk about the first thing we can learn, I have to talk about religion. Now, I grew up in the Loma Linda University Seventh-day Adventist Church, which is not too far from where Paradox is today. And I have to tell you, I grew up with a very positive feeling about church. I really enjoyed Sabbath school and church and several things about my experience growing up on that campus. So throughout most of my life, I've had a very positive outlook on religion. So when someone asks me the question, what is the best thing that religion has given you, I can come up with an answer rather quickly. Now if you consider yourself a religious person, I think it's important for you to be able to answer this question. What is the best thing that religion has given you? Now it's not important for you to have the same answer as me but I would answer this question by saying the very best thing that religion has given me is a community. I am grateful for the people I have met through the church. And what I love about a church community is that there were several adults who were very interested in my development and growth and who I was all because we just simply belong to the same church. Not only that, but as I watch the world become more and more siloed online and how we only listen to news that we want to hear, one of the great things about the church is that this is a place where we come together with people that we disagree with. And every week at Paradox, we break bread and drink from the cup to remind ourselves that no matter how much we disagree, we are still one In the spirit and so when someone asks me what is the best thing that religion has given me I respond well the community is my favorite thing about religion so I tell you this because there are positive things about religion otherwise I probably wouldn't be a pastor overseeing a religious body (laughs) because while there are good things about religion there are also bad things And I have a feeling that if I just jumped into the bad things about religion, you would say, well, Craig is anti-religion. I'm not. I'm at church every week. (laughs) So with that in mind, let's talk about something that's bad about religion, because I think it's on display here in Ezra chapter 10. Now, if you don't know me, you may not know what my stance on interracial marriage is. But if you know me, it becomes very apparent the moment you meet my wife. My wife is Filipino-American, and my kids are kids who have mixed ethnicities. Now, I tell you this because when I read the story of Ezra 10, it's a very personal story. Because let's assume for a moment that my family lived 2,500 years ago in Jerusalem, and I was a man from the tribe of Judah. Well, if this happened, Ezra would come before me and say, Craig, you need to divorce your wife and send her and your kids away now of course I would respond by saying what why now this is just a guess but I'm pretty sure Ezra would say something like this well your wife's people worship a different God and she has made you less passionate about our true God now let's assume that I can accept this premise the very next logical step that is not in the story of Ezra 10 is I would say to Ezra So if that's true, then why do my kids have to go? And Ezra, I believe, would respond by saying because their mixed ethnicity is making you less committed to God. Now let's be very clear about something. This mixed marriage ban and this prejudice against children of mixed ethnicities is rooted in racism. Now the justification is that they drive a man's heart away from God, but ultimately it is racist. This idea that a kid of mixed heritage would somehow make their father less religious is a racist sentiment. Not only that, but this racism becomes real when you consider the power of Ezra. And so when I read this story in Ezra 10, it's very personal to me because I think about my own kids and I love them to death. Not only that, but the greatest joy in my life is being married to my wife, Kimmy. And if religion were to come along and say, hey Craig, those kids are distracting you from your passion for God, I would say, well then, screw you guys. If religion were to say to me, you can't be married to Kimmy because it hurts your spiritual walk, I'd say, well then it's time to quit my spiritual walk because this woman and these kids are where the substance of life is found. And I have to tell you that when I read Ezra 10, it is incredibly tragic to me because there's all of these men who don't care about these women and their children. And the state's religion doesn't see them as valuable, beautiful human beings created in the image of the divine, but instead sees them as pawns that can easily be discarded in order to advance their own racist agenda. So the first thing that we can learn from Ezra chapter 10 is very simple. My religion isn't always good. I think this is really important for every Christian to be able to say Because there's this idea out there that everything Christianity does is right and good. But the fact is, when you look through our history, when you look through our own Bible, there are times that religion gets it wrong. There are times that religion does what is evil. And Ezra 10 is a story about when religion isn't good. Which brings us to the second thing that we can learn from Ezra chapter 10. There's this idea that is predominant throughout Judah that informs the actions of Ezra 10. The idea is this. We understand God better than everyone else on earth. The natural conclusion from that belief is that we then should be suspicious of anyone else's understanding of God. And so because of that, the powers that be looked at all of these foreign women and said, these women and children clearly don't love God as much as we do. Why? Because we love God more than everyone else on earth. So Ezra is in charge and he's convinced that foreign women and children of mixed ethnicities are anesthetizing the religious passion of his people. He looks at these couples who are in interracial marriages and their foreign wives, and he says, they, they are the problem. And in Ezra's worldview, of course they are the problem, because Ezra would never believe that God could love them as much as God loves the people of Judah. And those people could never love God as much as the people of Judah could. Ezra is biased against people Who are not his own. While it's easy to point at Ezra and say, well, Ezra's the problem because he has biases, I would tell you that every person I have ever met is biased against people who are not their own. Now, we don't like talking about our biases, especially against people who are not our own, Uh, but I think it's important for us to own up and talk about them. And so with that in mind, I'd like to tell you a story about how I'm biased against people who are not my own, even though it's a story I'm embarrassed to tell. Now, this story involves my cousin, Emily, who's about the same age as me. Emily is a sonographer, or some people refer to her as an ultrasound technician. And when my wife was pregnant with Bodie, my cousin, Emily, began scanning my wife, so that we could see pictures of our baby. And I remember this one time that she said something along these lines. She said, I'm going to switch to a lower frequency probe to get a better detail in the depth of field. When she said that, I remember thinking, wow, my cousin knows so much about photography. Here she is talking about depth of field. She's amazing. And then it hit me that my amazement was entirely because she was a woman. And if my cousin was not a woman but was a man, I don't think I would be that amazed. You see, my thoughts informed me that I believe women don't understand photographic depth of field as well as men. And I have to tell you, this is really embarrassing to say out loud. But it's an implicit bias that I hold. Now, an explicit bias is exactly what we saw in Ezra, which is all the foreign women are making us less religious. An implicit bias is one that we don't voice out loud. And what this story taught me is that this implicit bias that women don't understand the technical natures of camera as well as men is something that's inside of me, and I need to be aware of it. So when I talk to female photographers, I have to remind myself that they know a lot more than me. And rather than try to teach them or be amazed by what they can do, I should probably hold my mouth shut and listen, because they know more than me. Now you may not struggle with implicit biases against women, but you probably struggle with implicit biases against people who are not your own, whether that's across lines of education, or socioeconomic status, or race, or political parties. What I have found is that every human being carries around biases against people who are not their own. And the most unhealthy way to deal with that is to say, well, I'm not biased. I don't have those problems. But what's healthy is to admit that you do have biases. To be aware of them. And so when someone comes along who is not like you you are more likely to be receptive even if it challenges what your biases are. Now, let's get back to what Ezra 10 can teach us today. Because rather than challenging his racial and religious biases, Ezra's religion entrenches him deeper in his biases. His religion doesn't say, hey, you should pay attention to the value of children and women. Instead, It tells him that children and women are more disposable because that's what God wants. And immature religion entrenches us further into our tribal biases. Now if Ezra were on this podcast today, I believe he would say, well, of course it does because we understand God better than everyone else. Which brings us to the second thing we can learn from Ezra 10. Every religious person is tempted to believe that they are superior to others. Now, I'm very pro-religion. It's obviously got false, but I think it's ultimately a good thing. And one thing I think that we need to do as religious people is when we talk to people who are converting to our religion, we need to tell them the number one temptation they will face. The number one temptation any religious person faces is to be tempted to believe that you are better than others because of the religion you practice not only that but when people have been going to church for years after years after years they start to believe that they are better than others because their religion gives them some sort of inherent value this simply isn't true It is a temptation that we fall to over and over again. And I believe that this idea that we're better than others because of the religion we practice ultimately leads us to hate. And this is why so many Christians in America today are defined by what they hate. Religion tempts people to believe that we are superior to others. And we need to be aware of it and not fall to that temptation. Which brings us to the third thing we can learn from Ezra 10. As I said, there's this idea that we understand God better than everyone else on earth, and therefore we should be suspicious of anyone else's understanding of God. I still hear that in California from Christians today. We understand God better than everyone else, so let's be suspicious of everyone else's understanding of reality this is a mistake that religion needs to stop making. This mistake leads us to hate others. And to tell you how we can avoid this mistake, I'd like to tell you a story. I grew up in church and I grew up going to church school and I was told about people who believed things that were different than us. People outside of our church bubble and our church school bubble. And I was told that there was these atheists out there, and these atheists were just clueless people who were usually angry and hadn't thought correctly enough about life and reality to come to the natural conclusion of God. So I was trained and told how best to convert atheists to our faith because, well, if I just presented the case for Christianity logically, they would easily convert. So this worked the entire time I stayed in church school. But the problem was, I went to a public university in Bozeman, Montana. Montana State University. Now, some of you heard this story before, but while I was at Montana State University, I met a guy named Tyler, and wouldn't you know it, he was an atheist. And we end up becoming friends. And we were cordial about each other's religion for the first few months, but then all of a sudden, Tyler turned to me one night and said, Craig, are you finally ready to talk about religion? Now, I remember thinking at that time about how this is it, and I remember picturing Tyler's soon-coming baptism. After all, I was going to present a logical case for Christ that was irrefutable, and there's no way that Tyler could deny it if I spoke honestly about my faith. So I began to speak, and Tyler listened. And after some time, Tyler said, come on, you don't actually believe that, do you? And Tyler would show me very quickly about how my thinking was illogical and the only logical conclusion was in fact to not believe in God. Within about five minutes of our conversation starting, I realized that I was overmatched and Tyler was much smarter than me. Not only that, but I started to be frightened That Tyler was going to convert me to atheism. (laughs) He talked a lot about suffering and where was God in the midst of all of the pain in the world. He talked about science in a way that I'd never heard before. And he talked about the problems of the Bible. And I just sat there like, oh, they never told me about all of this. (laughs) And it was pretty aggressive and hostile toward each other uh, about each other's beliefs for the first two years, really. And then after that, we just realized we probably weren't going to convert the other person. And so we just would have a lot more casual and fun debates about what the other person believed. And it was just, just became better, right? But the thing that happened was Tyler kept asking me this question when I would tell him about something that I believe. And the question was simply this. Craig, do you actually believe that? And in all the time I had gone to church and all the time I had spent in church school, no one had ever asked that. The closest I got to that question was somebody once asked me is, do you believe in the teachings of the church? Which is a very different question than, do you actually believe that? And what would happen is whenever Tyler would ask me, do you actually believe that? I would say, I don't know. And I'd go back and I'd read scripture or I'd talk with a pastor or or I'd pray. And there were times I went back to him and say, yeah, I, I do, I actually believe that and let me tell you why. And there were other times I went back to him and I said, you know, I thought about it and I don't actually believe that. And I let go of that thing that the church told me that I needed to cling to. And we've been friends now for over 10 years, and what I've appreciated about Tyler is it's this process of elimination when it comes to my beliefs. And it's really made me value the beautiful things about our tradition, and it's allowed me to let go of the superfluous things that don't help me and don't help others. And this questioning and asking and genuine interest in what I believe has been so valuable to me That back in March of this year, we invited Tyler to paradox. And we didn't invite him to debate which one was more real belief or doubt, science or faith. No, we invited him as a guest teacher. And I use that word very intentionally because my testimony is that one of the greatest spiritual teachers in my life is an atheist. And if that sounds like a paradox to you, well then, welcome. We're glad that you're listening to the Paradox Podcast. (laughs) The third thing we can learn from Ezra 10 is that we transcend our religious biases by trusting that people outside of our religion can teach us about God. Whether they are atheist or Muslim or Buddhist, or Hindu. There is something that they can teach us about who God is and therefore they are valuable. Imagine if the people of Judah 2,500 years ago would have actually trusted this. They wouldn't have cast out the foreign women. They wouldn't have callously tossed aside children with mixed ethnicities. This whole episode of hatred could have simply been avoided if people believed that they can learn about God from people outside of their own heritage. Imagine if we could study Ezra 10 as a failure of religion and the lesson we could teach ourselves and our descendants is that we should learn about God from people outside of our tribe. I believe that that simple lesson can change the way that Christians in America treat others today. This idea that we can learn about God from immigrants, from the poor, and from Muslims would do a lot to temper the hatred of so many Christians and maybe just turn it into love. My brothers and sisters, may we be humble enough to learn about God from people outside of Christianity. And may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all people.